Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for August 11th, 2019. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, excited about the show tonight. Um, We have a guest, a first-time guest, that has his own informative and entertaining uh, podcast that he started just this year. Uh, I think it's been going on for um, since about April. Uh, I just caught a hold of it a few weeks ago and have gone back and listened to a lot of episodes. Um, The 2020 Election Ride Home, uh, the host of that show is Chris Higgins, who resides in Oregon, and so we're going to have Chris on the show to tell us about that and then talk about other national politics since he's somewhat of an expert, if you will, having his own daily show uh, every afternoon. Um, So that'll be coming up in about 20 minutes. But until then, we're going to talk about a variety of political topics. And we started off the show talking about Dayton, Ohio and El Paso, Texas. And we're going to start out again with that, but not the sad and tragic events but just kind of the political, um, you know, fallout, the, the ramifications, what's happened during the week. And I guess the fact that the House and Senate are not in session, uh, it's not like anything else is going to make as much news. And then um, it, it shows that these two events, I think, happening in the same day is one of these uh, events that maybe stays with the uh, national consciousness longer. Um, for whatever reason, but the way I want to start off with this is the Republicans, you know, it can't be the guns. It just can't be the guns with that party since they're so beholden to the NRA. Um, so they've talked several things, you know, the video games, social media, but they also bring it back to mental health. And, and you know, obviously a lot of these individuals that have been involved in these, if not every single one of them, have probably need some mental health help. I mean, I don't disagree with that. It's kind of like if you have gasoline and fire, um, you can blame one or you can blame the other, but the combination is certainly potent. Um, And so they talk about the mental health. And so I'm wondering if the Democratic Party shouldn't just switch gears this time and say, hey, GOP, I tell you what, we're going to try it your way. Why don't we come up with a great, mental health bill, a comprehensive mental health care plan for our nation, maybe mental mental Medicare for all. Um, They write it up and they say, now we know y'all got to be on board since you know it's not the guns, it's the mental health care. Catherine, if they were to do, a Democratic Party would do something like that, what do you think would happen? It would get shot down because it's too expensive. So that's what the Republicans would say. But, I, I mean, but I then if they it, said that, you're... I believe that that would be the argument. Well, we can't afford it. But can we afford shooting after shooting where dozens of people die and seemingly every one of these shootings? I mean, you, you know, you can't put a, a value can. on a human life. <laughs> Apparently, we um, can, or we would be farther along in this process. Yeah. Well, and Catherine, you may be right. I'm I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate um, because, I mean, these these tragic events over and over and over, at some point, you got to spend billions of dollars if you have to to end it, whatever it may be. Um, Tim, kind of if we were to look at it, you know, from the mental health side this time, and we're not just going to, you know, do the Band-Aid version of it. Um, you know, not Lucy with the five cent sign, 
on uh, Charlie Brown cartoons, <laughs> we're really going to do something. Uh, what do you think the GOP reaction would be? Well, if a, if the Democrats pass any bill out of the House, it's going to be the same reaction that they've given to every other type of bill the House has passed. Uh, it'll never see the light of day over in the Senate. Mitch McConnell is not going to allow it. He's not going to give the Democrats a legislative victory this close to the election or, or anything like that. It's just not going to happen. Uh, it, it, any, for anything to get passed, anything, and I mean on guns, on background checks, on mental health, on anything, it's going to have to originate over in the Senate and it's going to have to be a GOP bill so that the Republicans and Trump can get the credit for anything that passes. And that's the way it's going to be. So, you know, that's that's politics, and McConnell can do this, and he's gotten away with doing it, and he's going to continue to get away with doing it no matter what we do or say or anyone else does or says. Until one thing happens, David, what's that? Until they pay for it at the polls, until the voters hold them accountable for this. And until that happens, then nothing's going to happen, at least from our side of things. Yeah, I think something you have to try to have some kind of plan to call their bluff because they keep using the same playbook over and over. Okay, we're going to do something different this time and call your bluff, and, and let's talk about mental health this time. Um, and, and let's see what we can get because, I mean, I do wonder, okay, we had these two shootings. We seemingly have some, you know, way too periodically. At what point is this a shooting like this every month, a shooting like this every weekend, uh, you know, seemingly every day? At what point – do people say they've had enough? I mean, we know if it was the economy and the well, unemployment rate goes from 4 to 5 and 5 to 7 and 7 to 10 and 10 to 15, at some point, it doesn't matter what somebody's political persuasion is, they say too many people are out of work. At what point with people dying in every seemingly every uh, social situation, be it a school, a concert, shopping at Walmart, do the American people just say, we've had enough, we don't care what your side or your side wants, we've just got to have a solution? Look, in February, the House passed two pieces of legislation about enhanced background checks. Now, over 90% of the American people, including two-thirds of Republicans, are all for that. And it has not seen the light of day since, and it's not going to see the light of day. McConnell is not going to let it happen, no matter who's had enough. The only way it's going to happen is if we express it at the polls. You take over the Senate, you take the presidency, then you can do something. Until then... There's just nothing going to happen. Mitch McConnell's not going to let it happen unless it originates in the Senate as a Republican idea. For instance, Lindsey Graham is all ready to go with his own bill, you know, about background checks. Lindsey Graham. And... uh that one is probably going to be the one that hits the floor, and and who knows what will be in it. I, with input from the NRA, I, I wouldn't look for a whole yeah, lot, it's guys, be. If, if I was y'all. So then if, if it's something so ridiculous that we can't sign on to it, they'll turn around and say, see, it's all your fault. You Democrats are all talk." You really don't want to do nothing about this scourge of violence in our beloved land. And they'll have Trump trumpeting that, and they'll have their own networks on television and the talk radio and all saying it all in unison, and their bunch will just buy right into it. 
if I sound a little cynical, it's because I'm a little cynical. Well, and, and that's what I'm saying. It's, I'm saying not about the guns on this time because seemingly if we don't do anything, unfortunately we know there will be more. There, there will be more of these incidents because nothing's going to change. So let's talk about a different angle of it. Let's talk about mental health. You know, does that fix the whole problem? Probably people are still going to have unfettered access to guns. People are still going to, like, avoid mental health care service at times because of the stigma. And so it may not solve it. But then you can say, Mm -hmm. we tried it your way. It's kind of like the scientific, you know, method. You try one thing. You say it doesn't work. You try another. You problem solve. You reiterate. Just like if if the GOP, I'm going to use that medical analogy again. Let's say we have 107 fever and there's a cut on somebody's finger, and the GOP, Lindsey Graham's background check bill, is like a Band-Aid. Okay, let's vote for the Band-Aid, but we can vote for the Band-Aid and say, this ain't treating the 107-degree fever. We will do it your way because it'll be your way or no way, but then when the next, unfortunately, one, two, three of these happen, we can point back and say, we did it your way. We, it didn't work. We got to do it a different way. And so we've got to we've got to begin just to take the teeth out of their poor arguments. Here's what we know. We know two things that Trump has already said he'd sign on to. One of them is a mental health issue. These, I believe they refer to them as red flag laws. What that means essentially that if a person uh, represents a threat, you know, for, for mental health issues or whatever, and they've got access to guns and all that, uh, that their families and, and maybe law, local law enforcement people, mental health professionals, people that actually get to see these people in person can go to the local authorities and get something done to, protect, uh, you know, prevent these certain people from getting guns for mental health reasons. That's about all Trump has signed signed on to so far. And that's about all you're going to see on the floor. And like I said, the NRA's in, I mean, come on. The NRA. Uh, Catherine, I, I sound well, hopeless, uh, but it, it really almost is, isn't it? It is, and and you know those these the red flag laws or whatever they don't like to call them that for some reason. But mm-hmm. the the mother of the guy in El Paso did call the authority, wasn't it, or was it Dayton? One of them, the mother called the authorities like weeks before it happened, and nothing happened. Mm-hmm. I think it was the El Paso guy. So I mean. It, it doesn't help. It, we are just so uh, entrenched in this gun culture that I just don't see how. I mean, my, my you know my always my solution is let them have all the guns they want, but they can't have any ammunition. <laughs> like tax the hell out and limit the access wow. to ammunition. If if. Here's the deal, guys, and it's the same deal it's been for years. If we're going to address gun violence in this country and the guns themselves are not part of the conversation, then I don't really see any need in talking about anything. Well, that's just it. You have to then – you know you're not going to get anything now, and so why not – Take another, like we did it your way. We've went down this path. It'd just be like if you knew somebody had the wrong directions to somewhere and they were so stubborn and you said, you know what, we're going to go your way and we get there and it doesn't get us where we need to, then we're going to drive back and we're going to go my way. Because you're wrong and I know you're wrong, but you're so stubborn that we're just going to do it your way to appease you because if we don't, we're going to be that many more months, weeks, even years down the road with nothing getting done. I think they have I, to begin to pull David, the team think, out I of their arguments. I think it's safe to say that, that Tim and I agree with your premise, but it's just not going to mm. happen. Right. It's just That's not, it. you know, um, I just don't, well, I don't see, yeah. I just don't see the Republicans 
doing anything substantial around around mental health care. Yeah. And well, if we pass that if we pass that something substantial in the House, it will join uh, the February bills that were passed yeah. there in File oh. 13, and and we know that. Well, you have to then pass something to show you can legislate, the other side can't. You take that argument away. Then when they say, oh, well, about mental health, you can say, well, what about Bill 214 that was proposed in late August and you didn't do jack squat? You've got the talking points. We couldn't afford it. No. Well, and, and and then there it is. So we can afford X number dead Americans through gun violence since boom. They would walk straight into that line in a debate. So we can afford and then it'd be like, oh crap. The American people, I mean, it, it, there's your debate line right there. You, the, you Republicans just walked into it. Well, let's talk about the gun culture. Catherine, you mentioned it. Um, there was a gentleman in Missouri that during the week that wanted to test Walmart's commitment to the Second Amendment, and he walked in with body armor, a pistol, and a rifle into his local Walmart in Missouri, and um, the authorities were called. Uh, Luckily for him, he didn't get shot um, since he looked not like the average, even the big, you know, gun carry guy that has the pistol on his hip. That might go to shop at Walmart, but I mean, this guy looked like he was ready to, you know, do damage, if you will. Uh, but it was all in the name of guns. Like he didn't really care who got, um, you know, harmed in these two incidents. He just wanted to make sure Walmart was safe for guns. Still, um, is this not the microcosm of our gun culture? <laughs> Honestly, I, I got to tell you, I'm surprised this doesn't happen more often. I really am. I mean, when you've got all these open carry laws, why? I, I mean, I'm just surprised that people don't do this every day, all the time. You know, yeah, I don't know why everyone was so surprised by this. I was not surprised at all by by that. They always fall back on the Second Amendment argument. And why doesn't somebody stand up and call that lie out? The Second Amendment is not about private gun ownership. It never has been. It's about regulated militias, thus the third and fourth word in it, what we today would refer to as the National Guard. It has never been about private gun ownership, and even the NRA used not to do that until they had the Cincinnati Revolt at their national convention one year, and the gun industry effectively took them over as their political arm. Somebody needs to stand up and start saying that, and more. And, and people just don't do it. The, the, that's not an argument they should be able to fall back on. It, it's not. I agree. And as long as they can... You know, it's going to be tough to stop. Yeah, I mean, and that's something. You mentioned something. You mentioned something really important there. You know, we often we we we're we're quick to um, blame or uh, cast um, aspersions on the NRA, but the gun manufacturers are probably even more influential because they have more money. And and I mean the NRA is kind of in in a little bit of a mess right now. So I think it's easy to just you know sort of put the blame on the NRA, but it's also the gun manufacturers and the um, companies that sell guns that that also are heavy lobbyists in Washington. They, and they in the sell fifty percent of the privately owned firearms on the planet in this country. And darn right they're going to spend the money up there in Congress right. and make threats and do whatever that they can to to have it all their way. They don't want to meet us anywhere and talk about this. They like things the way they are. 
Anybody with me? Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> okay. Are you there, Dave? Oh, David. That's right. David uh, is. Um, well, yeah, he he's busy, so go ahead, Catherine. Um, what about this uh, NRA? Uh, is she the president of the NRA? In, uh, yeah, Hopkins. down in Marietta. <laughs> that was hilarious. I thought that was really I, funny I, that she had to, she had to hire off-duty cops to secure her home. Here she is, the president of the NRA. Like, surely you've got enough guns in your house to. Yeah, I mean that should safe. be the most heavily armed fortress in the state, right? <laughs> I mean, and, in the country. And, and of all things, having to hire extra security. I mean, yes, to protect I, I, to protect her from who, by the way? I thought well, all the gun people were for her. Yeah, but there's been a, I, I guess she's been getting a, like a lot of there's been a lot of tweets about the NRA and there was some. Oh, somebody put a bunch of um, children's shoes. In front of her home, and like just pairs of shoes to indicate the children who have been killed by guns. So, you know, Catherine. Hey, Tim, if I'm if I can put a pin on it real quick, Um, we've got our guest on the line, and we're so excited to have on the show for the first time, Mr. Chris Higgins. Welcome, Chris. Welcome, everybody. How are y'all doing? Yes. Um, yes, uh, Chris. Uh, we um, we kind of set up your show a little bit early in, but um, we're going to let you talk about your bio and things you've done in the political world and outside the political world uh, leading up to that. Right on. Well, uh, gosh, I guess where to start? I I think my a little bit of my accent's going to sneak out here because. I grew up mostly in Florida. I went to school at uh, Florida State, and the rest of my family lives in Charleston, West Virginia, or thereabouts. Um, so I used to spend summers up in there. And <laughs> the more, I, whenever I'm in the South, I uh, I kind of start the, the it flips out a little bit. So uh, pardon me if uh, if I go in and out, if you know what I'm saying. Um, so here's the deal. Um, I grew up in a, a progressive family. Uh, my dad's involved with the church uh, in a progressive way, and he is now a priest in the Episcopal Church. Um, and as a child and as a you know a young man, I was instilled with a sense of, of values and decency. Uh, we did a lot of listening to national public radio, and in fact, I was reflecting on the first time I ever saw television was when my parents wheeled out uh, the TV which I didn't know he had at the time. He he had kept it in the basement uh, to show me Geraldine Ferraro speak at the convention. That was my first memory of television. Uh, I went to school essentially to get a job, if that makes sense. And I came out working computers for a long time. Um, I had been nursing a desire to be a journalist, um, a writer of nonfiction, uh, and eventually that came to pass. I ended up writing uh, nonfiction books for children uh, for a while. I was a reporter for many years. Um, I've worked for a bunch of different outlets. Probably the most important ones would be uh, The Atlantic, This American Life. They just uh, The newest show, the one that's going to come on the podcast feed, I think today, during this show on This American Life, is the rerun of uh, a report I did for him in 2010 that just came out as a movie, which is a mind-blowing thing on its own. Well, here's the situation. <laughs> Time passed, and uh, Donald Trump happened, and a dear friend of mine began a podcast company, and uh, their format for shows is a daily digest. They call it the ride home. Uh, right now, they have a tech ride home. <clears throat> the idea there being, you know, if you're a, t- a tech nerd, which I also am, and you haven't been sitting there refreshing the browser all day, you need to you know, figure out what you missed. Um, and somebody said to them, you know, what I would listen to would be a primary ride home. And uh, yeah, I think my friend and his partner looked at each other and said, yeah, actually I'd listen to that. So at some point I got a call and they said, would you cover the primaries? Uh, and I said, yeah. Uh, and they said every day, <laughs> except, except weekends and national holidays. And I said, well, I'll give it a, I'll give it my best shot. So 
around April we started. Um, we've been picking up a kind of a shocking amount of steam, to be honest. Um, and now I find myself every day, um, I'm out on the West Coast now, I'm in Portland, Oregon, uh, waking up at four in the morning uh, and reading everything I can find. Uh, we have now changed from the primary ride home to the election ride home. And are, we're now trying to broaden out into coverage of, <clears throat> you know, the, not, the broader election, essentially Senate, House, you know, governors, all this business. Uh, so that's where I find myself right now. And it's about a 15 to 20 minute, uh, daily show Monday through Friday, uh, releases at, at the latest at 5 PM, um, Eastern time. So my work day is usually done at 1 PM, maybe 2 PM Pacific, having done a good eight hours there. Um, and, uh, I, I do my best. I'm trying real hard to educate people without putting, letting them choose things and letting them hear from candidates in their own words, but also putting a lot of context to things because frankly, a lot of my viewers are young enough to not know who Anita Hill is or what the nineties were or what the eighties were, or what Reaganomics is or any of this stuff that may seem uh, normal to us or, or history to us. I, I tend to take out time to say, this is the context as I see it uh, now, maybe make up your mind if you, if you need to. Yes. Well, Chris, you came out at a great time for me. I used to have about a seven-minute ride to work, and um, I switched job uh, teaching locations. Now I have about a 25-minute ride to work, and then about a 35-minute ride home because I coach at a different um, school. And, and actually, when I coach, I get to listen to you on the way home. If I don't have to coach that day, um, I, I beat you home, if you will. But where, I, where I'm going with all this is with that seven-minute ride home or to work or from work, either way, I would listen to um, Politico's playbook in the morning, and I still listen to it. It's about, you know, under five minutes long. And, but it's, it's short and gets to the point, much like your podcast is at the end of the day. When you kind of started planning yours and thinking about end of the day, did you kind of see yourself as a natural bookend to what Politico's doing? Actually, no. I, to be honest, I had a lot of experience with that tech show I mentioned. I've been a, like a fill-in writer and a fill-in host on that quite a bit. Um, and I'm obviously aware there are many daily shows on, you know, like for example, the, the Daily, the the New York Times show, is something that I listen to not every day, but but frequently. Um, and so, to be frank, I had not been working in politics. I had not been working this beat until April. I'd been consuming a, let's say, heck of a lot of media about it. Um, and primarily, you know, I've been, I've always been a consumer of, of news media. But like, no, I didn't, I didn't think this was a companion to any specific other piece of media. But I do keep finding that there are these complementary things, and I do find a lot of listeners saying you are what I do for my afternoon or my evening walk. And so when you come on, when that thing happens, that's when I take the dog out or whatever. I also get a lot of students coming like saying, saying this is what I do right before I go to bed. I think, well, you know, you're a stronger person than I, but you know, go, go right ahead. But the, yeah, the intent there, right. Is to distill without, without reduction. Right. So to, to, to make things short enough that, it didn't have to have that responsibility all day of feeling like you had to be the one mired in the anxiety of the current situation, but that you would engage with that once a day, at least in a, in a focused way. And I do, I try to do my homework and making sure that we have a lot of source links and so on, but uh, I'm glad it's working for you because you are you're literally our target audience. Somebody's, you know, legit, well, literally driving home, you know, and wants something to listen to. It's a daily, uh, daily habit. You're probably, honestly a lot more engaged with politics and knowledgeable than I would think our, our average bear might be, but Hey, they're all welcome. Oh, and you didn't have to tell on yourself, Chris, I would have never known after listening to like, I think I told you setting this interview up about 30 episodes. I, I would have thought you would have been covering politics for years now. Um, so you didn't have to tell on yourself. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, uh, well, well, David. You know, let's just say I've been, I've been covering it for about forty-five years, uh, fifty years, maybe. Uh, so I'm coming. Through, I'm a real natural. You know, it's just. Uh, <laughs> well, well, now I've had a lot of experience here. I'm going to ask you <laughs> one political question, then I'm going to pass it over to Tim and Catherine for others. Um, but the one I'm going to ask you is about Joe Biden, and you've talked some on the show 
uh, this week mm-hmm. about Joe Biden. He's not had necessarily his best week when it comes to his perceived mental um, awareness, maybe, you know, as you get older. I mean, obviously, Joe Biden's a very intelligent man, but I mean, just the fact that he is in his, you know, later 70s or mid to late 70s now. Let's just say that Joe Biden begins to really slip in the polls and it's sustained and takes hold, or he just decides, I'm not running. He is the current leader in the polls by a good significant margin, has a, you know, plurality of the vote at this point. Um, If he were to do that drop out or drop, um, do you think his vote share would go to another more moderate or candidates perceived as running well against Donald Trump? Or do you think a lot of the higher-up contenders that might be um, further to the left than him um, would get that vote? Well, I I think there's a couple ways to take this apart. I I don't want to give you the the 20-minute answer. So I'm going to shoot for maybe the three-minute answer. But I think that the the very simplest answer I can give you right now is I I tend to believe, based on the polling that I've reported on, that the support for Biden is not – entirely out of love for Biden as much as it is essentially a default setting. Um, I think there are certain communities, especially the black community, who know who this candidate is and specifically appreciate him. I think there are a lot of communities who are like, well, he's the main guy. He's got the best name recognition, so I'm going to go for that. So I, I perceive that leader role as relatively soft, even within the Democratic Party, given the dramatic share of registered voters who say, I haven't picked anybody yet. So if you have to say, what happens if you lose that candidate from the field? Where do they go? My, my basic guess is that they would go to the next perceived default candidate, which right now you can debate whether it's Warren or Sanders, but I think right now, well, again, let's say whenever it happens, <laughs> essentially you look at whoever's polling second. Um, regardless, I think, of this uh, perception of centrism, leftiness, uh, electability, you know, is it, a, is it a white male over X age or whatever? And I think the, the thing I want to say about the issue of, I suppose, the centrism thing or the moderate thing and electability is that as, hosting, as a host of this show, I've been contacted by an unbelievable number of young people um, and yesterday, for instance, I got a direct message on Twitter from some young lady. She said her, her question was, uh, I've never voted before. This is the first election I'll be able to vote for. I don't identify with any party. Uh, I don't really, you know, I don't know where I lean. I'm looking for an unbiased source of news. Do you lean left? And I, so I said, well, I, let me respond to you. Well, yeah, I lean left. Um, do I try to do I lean left in the same way that, you know, at uh, Chapo Trap House or somebody else like that? No, not at all. Uh, but, yeah, I'm covering Democrats. No, I have no love for the this administration. And, you know, but what I do have love for is, you know, an informed debate and people who actually care about the country. And uh, but yeah, I, I lean left a little bit. But what was interesting to me about that is think about this for just a second. Right. <clears throat> we've got we've got to move on what we think electability is. Electability right now is getting talked about by all of us, myself included, as an unexamined product of the 20th century. We're essentially looking at it and saying the 20th century happened, we were all alive during it, and that looked a certain way. And we, there was a certain thing that we thought was possible, you know, like the way, that, the way that people acted and spoke, what they looked like, what their gender was, what their sexual orientation was, all of these things, their attitude toward you know, other people, their decorum, all of those things were formed in the context of a 20th century, which was also itself formed in the context of previous centuries. Uh, I thought Donald Trump was not electable. He got elected. So if we're talking about, you know, I think this discussion of electability misses the fact that we don't know anymore what electability is and that the youth vote, the youth vote is enormous and that they've grown up in a world where it is entirely normal that women run for president as major candidates and win the popular vote, that black men are, get two terms, much less get elected at all, which is decidedly something that I didn't think could happen. In my, I, wasn't, I thought it might happen in my lifetime, didn't think it would happen so soon, and I'm proud that it happened. 
that they also have grown up in a world where it's normal that Donald Trump got elected. So quite frankly, this question of electability or the perception of electability, we have to apply it to the group of voters. And I think we're going to see a, a vital need to turn out the youth vote, the black vote, and the Latinx vote. And if we don't get to then there's a lot of obviously overlap within those subgroups. But if we don't get to those folks with some candidate who can actually inspire them to get out, we're not, we're not going to make it, you know? So I'm not, I don't, and I don't, I'm not saying Joe Biden can't do that. I think Joe Biden can do that actually, but were Joe Biden to exit the race, I think you, you would open up a can of worms that would allow all kinds of interesting things to happen. And for all I know, Tom Steyer would walk in and say, well, Hey, listen, here's my billion dollars. I got a couple ideas about this and that. Here we go. You know? So I, I think that, I think that we, we must not limit our thinking about electability because we, we may, I don't know what y'all's demographics are, but we probably don't represent the youth vote as such. And there is such a large group coming online that very quickly they're going to be living in it. They have already lived in a different world than us. And so we have to take that position and look at them and understand what's normal to them. All right. Well, I'm going to pass it on to Tim and Catherine who have more uh, political questions for you. Tim? Good evening, Mr. Higgins. Thank you for being with us. And, and I wanted to brag on you a little bit, too. David was talking about his drive home from work. I used to have to make about a 40-minute drive to work and then back from work every day for years. Uh, and my traveling companion was National Public Radio. And, and I know you had a lot to <laughs> yes, do sir. that, especially with this American life. And the next time you talk to Ira Glass, you thank him and, <laughs> and a lot of others for keeping this old boy company on his way to work in the morning and then on the way home in the evening. I'll listen to you religiously. That being said, that being said, you talked about the youth vote. Now, uh, without giving my age away, I, I, I've been around a while and, and involved for a long time. And the thing that I see that's similar to, say, 1968 applies today. That is, the youth vote simply does not turn out at election time at the same rates as older voters. How do we engage those voters to get them to vote? Hmm. Well, first of all, thank you for the NPR plug. I, I, I'm more of a product of it than a creator of it, but I, you know, I'm, I'm on both sides of that. But how do you turn out the youth vote? Um, you know, my impression, and I'm not. This is not based on empirical. You know, I haven't gone out and studied this issue. I haven't pulled on it or whatever. Uh, based on what I listen to from people who talk to me about the show is you give them something that means hope. I mean, I think Obama was a pretty good example of that uh, with a message that was charismatic essentially, and actually meant something to them. Give them, give these folks someone who doesn't have to look like them. doesn't have to be the same age as them. It doesn't have to be the same location as them, but somebody who can lead them in a way that actually makes them inspired and i've seen this with a couple of these candidates even if they're you know kind of lower down in the in the pack uh for example andrew yang i think he he is dramatically popular um, among young folks um gravel was i don't think gravel's campaign was that well run but they did manage to activate a certain thing about you know internet use and so on i think the thing you got to do is within whatever that ticket looks like I mean, ideally at the top, but somewhere on that ticket, <laughs> you probably need to have somebody who speaks in inspiring language and meaningfully to the issues that young people face. And then, frankly, the issues that they face are gun violence, uh, you know, the economy, uh, debt, um, and the environment. You know, I mean, I think that this this thing of, of understanding like global warming, essentially, I'm old enough to still think of it as global warming and not climate change, you know. Um, this is this is going to be their problem sooner than later. You know, the house I grew up in on the coast of Florida is going to be underwater by the time I'm 70. I'm gonna I, I will be able, under the current predictions, not the worst case predictions, the normal case, I will be able to go snorkeling above the ruins of my old childhood home. That's mm -hmm. the reality, 
And I think that if you get somebody who can speak to that in a way that says, we're not all going to die, but we are going to have to really think hard about how we're going to do this in an inspiring way, um, that should turn those folks out. And the fact that so many of the listeners I hear from are essentially saying, I have begun to care about this stuff. And so I'm looking around. Um, I think that that field is wide open right now. I don't think, I think a lot of those people are undecided and I am encouraged that they continue to seek information and not simply to say, well, you know, uh, clearly I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in it for this candidate or that candidate. They continue to be available. Um, so uh, to turn them out, I think that's a whole other thing, but you need to have ground game and people have varying levels of that right now in this, in this election, but we're going to see, uh, you know, come early next year, what that actually adds up to. And 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 when when you say inspiring in, in this election cycle, would it be fair to say that that would be code for speak to them as a progressive would? No, actually, no. I wouldn't say that. I mean, I, I think of myself as a progressive, but I think that the inspirational nature, because for example, I think that Andrew Yang is is somewhat progressive, but I think what it is is authenticity or as a perceived authenticity mm-hmm. by a young person today, which is not an experience I've had. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not an 18 year old person. I'm in my forties. Right. So I'm, mm-hmm. when I look at that, the, the inspiration I see is a perception of honesty and a perception of a perception of directness. And that's what Yang does when he says these things, he seems to go back to some set of first principles, for example, whenever asked on any issue, and I think that's very appealing to everybody, uh, but especially to certain subsets, certain subgroups. And I think that I do think that there's a good shot for a very progressive candidate to get to these folks. I think that's why Sanders did so well in the previous cycle, mm-hmm. um, because he's perceived as being essentially, you know, he, he he's not filtering himself so much. He's he's the perception of honesty and the perception of the ability to lead and the ability to understand the actual effects on people's lives is what I think the youth vote is looking for. And that's not a monolithic thing. Uh, I do think those folks can unite around a candidate. I I hope they will, because otherwise we've got no shot, you know, Uh, but that's what I think it is. I don't, and I think you could actually have a a moderate candidate if they, if they were given off that vibe, the thing that says, I'm telling you like the, the truth. And I, you know, I think that you had Delaney, for example, in the most recent debate, trying to do that and failing i don't think that he succeeded i mean he tried to say like let's you know I, i'm not saying he did, made bad points but i think the way in which he made them the way in which he made those points uh hurt him badly uh because it was combative and it it came across as calculated and i think that that's what's going to hurt people uh more than even if everybody is calculating if they're better at making it seem cleaner right seem more authentic and honest mm-hmm. now now speaking of the progressives uh in the race has elizabeth warren in your opinion essentially taken the progressive ground away from bernie sanders um how do i put this so in my show i try to very hard not to advocate a specific candidate or set of candidates mm-hmm. um because, you know, I'm trying very hard to say this is what happened today, right? Uh, it's mm-hmm. obvious to me that those two candidates share a pool of voters. They share a group of people who are, are ideologically aligned. Um, mm-hmm. It's obvious to me that Sanders has lost support um, and that Warren has gained support. Um, mm-hmm. It is not obvious to me that Sanders is out of it yet. Um, mm-hmm. He may be headed in that direction. Um, and... I think you can ascribe some of that to the ground game that Warren has been uh, working Mm -hmm. now. So, yeah, I wouldn't say that he's, I wouldn't say that she's completely run away with it, but right now she's up. Yeah. And if this continues this way, then his hopes in terms of fundraising are looking pretty good. He can still stay in the race for a very long time, but I Mm -hmm. think that the default position would fall to her uh, for a variety of reasons. But one of them is simply like she's, she has articulated some of those those pocketbook issues in a way that is less, honestly, a little bit less angry. And I think that that's mm-hmm. one of the things that Sanders might struggle with is that he's perceived as being angry. And sometimes that's a very good strength. You should be angry. You should get angry about this stuff. Mm-hmm. But I also think Warren 
has done a good job of being articulate about what the solution is. You know, you mentioned anger, and and don't get me wrong, I, I really do like Bernie Sanders. I, I like most most all of our candidates, as a matter of fact. But when I think of Bernie, uh, if, if there's a weakness there, I, I I think immediately. Do you recall the hecklers on, on the Muppet Show? The, the two old <laughs> yeah, men yeah, that yeah, used yeah. to sit. And, yeah. that, that, that's what it reminds me of sometimes when I hear Bernie talking. Yeah. I know it's terrible to say that, but uh, I, I just had to throw that one in there. <laughs> I want to ask you one more question, and then mm-hmm. I'm going to send it over to, to Catherine. As you know, the election is quickly coming up on us, and it'll be over in less than 15 months. Well, you're doing an election ride home podcast. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. at the, when that 15 months is up, has there been any thought given to continuing the podcast as a daily political show after, or are we not to that yet? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, a lot of thought has been given to that. And I think that there's, I'll break it into two pieces, which is the what is the specific future of that show? Um, mm-hmm. First of all, we came out of the gate as the primary ride home, and then we realized that literally the word primary was, was not what people were typing into their search engine. They were typing in election. Okay, mm-hmm. lesson learned. Um, so we did a transition already. Um, at that point, <clears throat> you know, once we were going to make that transition anyway to the, the election, at the point we had a candidate, we just made it early because it seemed like the logical thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, the show will go on is the short answer. Mm-hmm. It will become a daily politics roundup show. Um, and what, what the scope and scale of that, that's up for debate. And also whether I will do it every day is a big mm-hmm. question mark. Uh, there's a certain amount of burning, burning the oil down to the, the last <laughs> drop. And I can see a yeah. sprint. You know, it's, it is a sprint. It's a weird situation. You know, I go to bed at 8 p.m. to be able to get up at 4 in the morning to do this. To, go, to it's, a, it's a cycle, right? And so... Probably for me, there's going to be a big break, uh, and I, whatever, however it goes, however the election goes, my plan right now is for me to step back for a few months and assess what I'm going to do. The show will go on. The show will turn into, you know, the, the probably the politics ride home or the something. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, we're going to continue, and um, and then there's a question for me as to like what part of that I want to do or whether I want to, you know, pick up some different topic or something. But I, I will say the daily grind of a daily news show is it's a lot, you know, uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll keep making it. We'll probably All change right. the name. Fair, fair enough. And with that, I'm going to send it over to Catherine. Catherine. All right. Thank you, Tim. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for being yeah. on tonight. It's really interesting to talk with you. I've listened to a couple of your shows and they're really fascinating and, uh, entertaining, which is nice. Um, and I totally feel you. I used to um, run a blog here in Georgia about Georgia politics, and I it was my personal commitment to do a blog post every morning. So I would get up at like 5 o'clock in the morning. I, I had a full-time job at the time that I had mm-hmm. to leave my house by 7.30 or whatever, and I still had to get ready and everything. So I'd get up, and I'd um, you know sort of comb through the overnight news and think about what was on my mind and try to put together, you know, 150, 200 word blog post with some links, you know, standard thing. And it mm-hmm. wore me out. <laughs> so I totally understand how hard it must be to do a 15 minute podcast every day. I mean, I, it's just the thought of it is, uh, is uh, daunting to me. Um, well, I thank you. I appreciate that. By the, by the way, it's, 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 I, I write 3000 words because I speak too fast when I'm on the show. I write 3,000 words every day, even with clips. It's ridiculous. Yeah, that's uh, a know. lot. Yeah. Um, that's a little bit too much. I might cut back. <laughs> well, you're doing a good job of it. People seem to like it. I, I've listened to just a couple because I've been listening to an um, audio book, so I am oh, yeah. kind of enthralled with that. <laughs> um, you know, there's just only so much time that I'm in the car when I can listen. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I wanted to ask you about. I always like to. I, I'm a I'm a lifelong Democrat. I'm I'm always interested in party politics and how you think the party is is the party as a whole as a national party prepared. Do you think we are prepared for this election? Do we have 
enough money? Do we have enough ground game? Do you think that we're going to be able to all get along once the <laughs> convention is over? You know, we had a lot of problems last time with uh, the Bernie camps, the Bernie bros, as we call them, and the Hillary um, supporters. And I'm just, I, I mean, I'm always hoping that, I always hope that we can come together after the convention and hit the ground running and, you know, sprint to the election. But have you have, have you thought about that? And, and if so, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, no, my, my, my gut thought is um, we, we are – we are not prepared for how ugly this is going to be. There's two issues here. One, the one you're bringing up is essentially is the party itself capable of, uh, uh, of functioning within its own parameters, which is something we've classically had some, shall we say, challenges with. And we currently yeah. are seeing you know, a lot of friction with the DNC on a lot of issues, and the DCCC has got some problems. Uh, but, you know, <clears throat> I – gosh, you know – yeah, we're we're not prepared for it on that level. Uh, the the party itself is is going to have some trouble. But the thing we're really not prepared for is the incredible reality of campaigning against Trump and the incredible reality of the things that we think are shocking now. Um, we are not prepared for that. And the good news is that because we're not, we don't understand what it means to go into a re-election fight against this guy. I firmly believe that when we see that when regular humans see that that that's what tests our hearts and our souls and that's what will bring us together despite all of our disagreements um because i think that the reality of the ugliness of what we'll get um will present us with a very stark option and the option is simply you know stick with this monster or uh or or literally anything that will give us a lifeboat out now, I, I would love to say that, you know, that lifeboat is, is the ideal, perfect candidate that everybody can really love. Um, but I think it's going to come down to a, a pretty, pretty clear calculation um, because I think it's going to get really, really dark really fast. It already has. Oh, it's already. I mean, it's, it's already dark. And yeah. it, it's only going to get darker. I mean, the, his, um, the activities of the week are clear. I mean, he, he's. Uh, and not just him. I mean, it's the whole, yeah. the whole, uh, the Trump and his supporters are very, they're already very ugly. And it, it's only, get, like you said, I think it's only going to get worse. But so we just have to, we just have to stay motivated and we have to get all those young people motivated. So, ugh. yeah, I'm ready to go home now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's. Uh, well, I just want to I just want to say real quick. I mean, I, I do do not do not lose heart, right? I mean, that's part of the message of doing a daily show on this, which is you know, if if I were if I were not making this show, I would be listening to this show because I have such anxiety about the situation, right? Like it's something that needs to happen. It, 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 I, I need there to be a way to understand what's happening around me politically, uh, such that. That I can feel that I, I have some agency in this world and that the world is not completely lost to me. And that's something that I've often felt within the context of this, this administration. I've, I have felt where has, where has decency gone? Um, it's not a simple thing. You know, it's not a monolithic simple thing where we just say, well, okay, you know, decency's back and everything's great and people, are, people aren't awful anymore. Uh, and there's, I, I think that Biden's theory, his sort of epiphany theory, that you know, once somebody else is reelected, that everyone will will sort of come back to the table. Uh, I, I would say that that's a, a bit naive, but I think part of that is true, in that when Trump is gone, I think you're going to see a lot of folks who supported him say, "I didn't really like him. I was just doing it to be, you know, politically expedient." And I think if we make room for that to happen. Um, if we don't let vindictiveness get the better of, of us, you know, then we actually may have some, some room for, for growth as, and healing as a country, if, I, if that makes sense, because I, we're going to need agree it. With you. I agree with you, but I do think that, um, that Trump is really a manifestation of decades of this sort of vitriol growing right. under the surface, and he's just given it um given people the sort of uh freedom to be more outspoken and more 
and and bring it up above the surface. I don't think we can blame everything that's gone on on Trump because I mean, right, right. We've we've seen all this before. It's just that it's much more um, bombastic with him. <laughs> but I mean, I grew yeah. up. I, I, I'm I'm almost as old as Tim, <laughs> and so I mean, I voted. I voted for Jimmy Carter in the in his first election. That was the first time I voted, and mm-hmm. I mean we had a lot of ugliness back then too. So, um, yeah, but it was yeah. not as bombastic, and it was not as there there was uh, a lot more cooperation once people were elected. That that's the thing that's that's troublesome to me is that is this mm-hmm. like standstill in the Senate because. Moscow Mitch just doesn't want to do anything. Doesn't want to. Yeah. Anyway. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm going to get you back to David, and I think we're almost done. Thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Yes. Well, Chris, it is. uh, We've kept you on probably more than we agreed to, and we're sorry about that. But if you wanted to uh, leave our listeners with not only where they could find your your podcast, but other places they might could read your work or. Uh, interact on social media or what have you. Sure. Well, the the show is called The Election Ride Home. You can search for it in any podcast player if you want. Uh, you can get there more easily by going to ridehome.info. Uh, that's where we have both of the both the tech show and the election show. You can there's big subscribe buttons there on Google and so on. Um, I do spend some time on Twitter. I'm not a, a heavy tweeter. I, I just I can't I can't quite process the level of uh, interaction there. But I'm on Twitter at Chris Higgins, C H R I S H I G G I N S. Um, there are many people with my name, even in media. So I'm, I'm the one who got the name first. Uh, ChrisHiggins.com is a good place to go look if you want to see some of my film work. I'm also a documentary filmmaker. Um, and gosh, where else? I mean, I suppose that the the Twitter and the website are probably the places to go. And uh, yeah, every Monday through Friday, right around 5 p.m. on the East Coast, uh, the podcast comes out. And typically on there, I, I do give you a little update at the very end of each show about what's happening in my, my personal life. I'm uh, I'm doing battle with a, a tree stump right now, so you got to <laughs> tune in to find out how it's going to turn out because this is going to be this could go longer than the election, folks. I mean, this is a this is a stump. This stump has probably pre predates me, so and it had to go. I'm sorry, but you know it's me or the stump, so we're we're, we're working on it. Yes, I've heard about the stump, and I, I wanted to ask about it, but I thought, well, I'll let you save that for your show. Look, look, I got time. I got we, got to, we can turn this into stump talk. I mean, <laughs> it, it's intractable. I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't. I mean, nothing gets done anymore with the stump. <laughs> there was a time when we shared the yard, and then I had to cut it down. And yeah, it's tough. But yeah, yeah well, by the way, quick, quick quick note for Catherine. One of the, the biggest narratives of this election is the Senate, and I think that making sure that we we say that very loud right now, the Senate matters, and I'm going to be covering a lot of the Senate because Good. if we don't do this, we <laughs> we are doomed. Um, so here's hoping. Oh, yes. Well, thanks for coming on, and well, I'm going to keep listening. It sounds like I've gotten uh, two more converts and Tim and Catherine, um, and so we'll be listening there. And, and maybe in the future, if you're willing, we'd love to have you back on. Yes, sir. I'd love to. Uh, and thank all you, right. David. Thank you, Catherine. Thank, thank you, Tim, and uh, love to speak to you all again. Thank Great. you, thank sir. Thank you so much. All right. Chris Higgins, catch you Monday through Friday the uh, Ride Home Election podcast. Um, well, we've got time for maybe just like a two-second topic, and, and Chris was mentioning Twitter, and we got a guy that does love Twitter in the Oval Office. And while most people were um, really hopefully thinking of some solutions to what happened last Saturday in Ohio and Texas, uh, one guy just wanted to make it all about him. And also there was a photo thrown in, um, that was it was just as distasteful, if not more so, than all of this tweet storm he went on against criticizing all kind of folks, not just Texas politicians. Um, Tim, how ugly and distasteful was that reaction uh, to what happened last week? 
You know, I, I'm I'm just so afraid that we're just to the point now with him where it's just another tweet storm. They have become so commonplace that the outrage is generally short-lived. It has to be because as soon as you get outraged about it, here comes another one. The guy lives on Twitter. He just keeps doing it. He just keeps bombing and he knows one thing: his followers love it. I, I don't. I don't see it abating. I don't see it softening. I don't see Donald Trump mellowing at all. Do you, Catherine? No. No, it's just going to get worse. Right. Sadly, and the quote of the night: Tim Shiflet couldn't get outraged, and so we know we're in trouble. If we've uh, made Tim immune to outrage, the the father of the outrage of the week. Um, well, guys, until next week, uh, it's been the Cuts, Yvonne. Good night. Good night, guys. y'all. We are the heirs of that first revolution. With a strong and united 